HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the second season of Magnifico Radio, the weekly podcast featuring conversations in ethical fashion, clean beauty, and sustainable living. I'm your host, Kate Black, and this is episode 16. If you're listening live on the Heritage Radio Network, that means it's Monday and 1 o'clock here in Brooklyn, so welcome. Or if you found us through iTunes or Stitcher, welcome to you too. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. Each week I sit down with designers, makers, and leaders in sustainability to discuss their paths and motivation. This podcast is an extension of my blog, Magnifico.com, and that's Magnifico, E-C-O.com, and also my book called Magnifico, Your Head-to-Toe Guide to Ethical Fashion and Non-Toxic Beauty. Today's guest was born in Israel and immigrated to Canada with his Russian parents as a child. He left home at 17 and headed to Belize to plant trees. Using his experience of traveling and learning about other cultures as the impetus to create MBAs Without Borders, an international charity that works with talented business people across the globe to build and support small businesses or nonprofits that had some sort of social impact across 25 countries. And while the work they were doing was rewarding, Tal Detier kept asking if it was enough. He couldn't shake the thought that while the West had spent over a trillion dollars on traditional aid in sub-Saharan Africa, countries were still worse off economically. A problem solver at heart, he launched Au Liberté to support a thriving economy by focusing on manufacturing. With the world's only fair trade certified footwear factory located in Ethiopia, I've asked Tal to join me today to discuss Au Liberté and sustainable good. Hi, Tal. Hey, Kate. How are you? I'm well, and you? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. It's such a pleasure. So let's talk about, like, from MBAs to footwear, why footwear? Yeah, good question. So, you know, I did MBAs with a board for about five years and, and saw a lot of, you know, interesting things, and we did a lot of interesting work across across kind of three main continents. And 
I remember being in Liberia in West Africa, and I was kind of talking to one of these local hawkers, like a local sales guy had a shoe stall, and he had these sandals. They're handmade, but not, you know, pretty pretty well made. And uh, I said, you know, I'm always kind of curious how the local business is going. We were always looking for new projects, and I say to him, I say, you know, how's business? And he had these bloodshot eyes, and you know, just kind of stared me down, and basically looks at me and says, how how's business? He's like, the white man's coming next week. Everybody knows, like, you know, they basically say the villages, everyone's talking about how the white man's coming next week with their free shoes. And this is before people knew about Tom's, and this is, I mean, a number of years ago. But he's like, the white man's coming next week with his shoes. He's like, you know, people are willing to pay my sho- pay for my shoes. They're not expensive. They're $1 or $2. People buy them all the time. But when these charities come, he's like, I, I can't sell. He's like, how do I compete with free? And it was kind of that expression of how do I compete with free that kind of really stuck out in my head. And so it was around that time I started saying, hey, what else can we do here in Sub-Saharan Africa? And from there, you know, in a unique transition, I, I sold the, the rights of MBAs Without Borders uh, to a, a charity out of the U.S. Uh, called Pixera Global today. And, uh, and from there we launched Old Liberté, and, and it became a, a whirlwind adventure, and we'll get into some of that. But in, in a nutshell, that was how, the, how we went from one to the other. And I think sometimes when people listen to these entrepreneurial stories, first of all, it's really motivating, so that's why I want you to share. But they kind of think that it's easy, and it just kind of all comes together. So um, did you start? in Ethiopia? No, it's a great question. Uh, so uh, related to that story I just told about Liberia, the name O Liberté actually is a play on Liberia, Liberty, O Liberté. Um, and what ended up happening was uh, originally the goal was to build a shoe factory in Liberia in West Africa. They had all this natural rubber and I wanted to utilize it. And then I thought, okay, if I needed, you know, there was Nigeria nearby to make the leather or import it. Um, but unfortunately, you know, some, some, some things happened, and I had a local business partner in Liberia, and uh, about six months in, um, to clearing customs and getting our, our machinery in, uh, he, he passed away. He got malaria. He was a little bit older as well, but uh, unfortunately, he had passed away, and right then and there, uh, you know, a couple months later, I, I, or months later, sorry, a couple weeks later, I came back to pay my condolences, and after doing that, I noticed that all, all of our machinery had been stripped or stolen or, or kind of pretty much gone missing. And so, you know, I could have stopped right then and there and said, all right, well, it was a great idea and we're done. It's 2009. Um, but I said, you know, that's not why we did this. We knew it wasn't going to be easy or I knew it wasn't going to be easy. And so I started hearing about Ethiopia all the way on the other side of the continent and how they had this domestic manufacturing, you know, did some more research. They were all, the only country in sub-Saharan Africa that was able to compete against Chinese imports both in shoes but in other products as well and uh and so i kind of made my way over there and and, and we you know I, I somebody who worked for me when i did mbas without borders uh lawrence he, he worked for me in columbia and i think rwanda as well i can't remember now um but he ended up i had staying in ethiopia six months and he kind of knew my social barometer if you will and we audited and interviewed lots of tanneries uh, which who make the leather and lots of shoe factories to see who would be really good partners for us uh, and then from there, we started making shoes with, with third-party factories. That eventually changed to our own factory. But, uh, you know, the beginning was in, Ethi- it was in Ethiopia after Liberia, after, yeah, definitely some, some tough points and some pain points. But uh, it all got us to where we needed to get to. Well, and I love that you brought up China and, and competing with China because um, I think you caught my attention when you appeared on Canada's version of the Shark Tank. Um, and I don't know if people know that Kevin O'Leary appears on both both the Canadian and the American version. And so you you had a little um, exchange with him where he suggested that this business would be viable, but only if you switched production. 
Yeah, yeah, you know, a lot of people say that, that, you know, everything can only be done if it's cheaper in, the, in Asia or other countries. And, and you know, I think the world, you know, at this point in time, mind you, even in the U.S., is kind of at an interesting juncture about, you know, what is manufacturing, where should it be, and what, what price should be paid for it and related to the jobs or the product that's actually made. And so, you know, for, for us, it wasn't about, we knew our consumers cared, and, and you can see it, I mean, more and more. You can see consumers do care. Obviously, the listeners to this, to this show and the station, you um, you know, care more about not just how it's made, but why it's made and when it's made and, what, and where, and, and all the and all the kind of the who, what, when that go into a product. And for us, you know, it wasn't about finding the cheapest option. If we listen, we I knew nothing about shoes. I wasn't from this industry, so you know, anybody who's just going to you know has a better name, better better design aesthetic, I guess, is going to beat me out if it's just on that. And so, luckily, over time, our design you know have definitely improved as, as well as the quality, especially when we, we built our own factory. But what for us was really unique is the fact that from a marketing standpoint, this was made in sub-Saharan Africa, but that we weren't just doing it. Yes, I, like, you know, the labor is, is more affordable in Ethiopia, but to kind of put our stamp on it, uh, when we did open our factory, that was why a key reason was that people were like, oh, you're just in, the, you know, in, in Africa or Ethiopia because it's cheap. No, for us, it's, we're here because, yes, there, there is a marketing angle, no question about it, but there's also a very important... Uh, kind of mission that we can we can relay through the, this I guess this medium if you will of, of manufacturing in Africa, and that's why we became fair trade certified to say you know we're not just here for the labor we're here for for the mission and for the story and for the motivation for others to hopefully encourage them to whether they want to ma- manufacture in, in Brooklyn New York or you know Louisiana saying if we can do it in the, one of the most you know hardest harshest climates in the world there's no reason that you can't manufacture anywhere. Exactly, exactly. And I think, I think it's, I mean, it was, what year was that, that you had that exchange? 2010? Uh, with, uh, with, uh, with O'Leary? Yeah. Uh, so it would have been probably the first, I've been on, on that show a couple times, so it would have been either the first or second, so probably 2010, 2011, about, f- about five years ago, give or take. Yeah, I think, I think it's becoming more common to have that kind of, um, to have mainstream business rub up against somebody who's actually trying to put values um, into a business model. Um, but I just loved his face in that, in that episode because he was just so shocked that, that, you, that value would actually um, be, be one of the core reasons for for starting the business or for like continuing on with the business so can you can you talk about how that's working um this kind of value-driven ideology that you have from the factory's point of view how challenging was it to get certified was the factory on board to get certified are they appreciative now yeah great questions um you know so we built the factory, we, sorry, we opened up our factory in August of 2013. So we've been in Ethiopia since around May 2009, but we opened up our factory in, in 13, and we had about 15 workers at the time. Uh, today we have about 100, 115 workers in that location, majority uh, female. Uh, and then we just opened up a second factory about 400 kilometers north of Addis Ababa in a town called Deborah Marcos, which is specifically geared for selling shoes to kind of the rural local market and then people who have a, a specific foot disease called podiocosis. Um, but in terms of those challenges, I mean, they, they were great. So we, you know, I hear about a lot of um, other brands or companies, and, and, and they're doing great work, but I always hear about this, we're creating jobs. And for us, there was other shoe factories in Ethiopia. So for us, just to open up a factory and then pay a little bit better and take workers from another factory isn't creating jobs. We're, we're displacing jobs. Or, And so for us, a big part of our mission was to hire people that, for the most part, had no work experience. And so... I can't remember the percent, but I remember as 
you know, when we were first starting, we we were bringing like by by the truckloads, you know, small pickup trucks, I guess, if you will, uh, workers to the tax offices to get them tax ID numbers. And most of our workers weren't even the tax system, and so they were all in Ethiopia. Have to be minimum eighteen years old, and so they were all you know well above age. Um, but they just never, you know, they never were part of that system. And so a big part for us was not just to create jobs for people that needed it, but to bring people into a tax system. Because if you can create taxes and an income from taxes, you can fix roads and public services and all that stuff. And so as we continue to kind of move forward, we said the one step forward is, okay, great, we have these workers, everything's official, but what does fair trade mean? And so it was it was a long process. There's a lot of these um, other certifications which are, you know, call themselves fair trade. Uh, we specifically went with fair Trade USA, which for us we feel is kind of the gold standard of fair trade certification, and the reason that is 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 they actually do certifications on the ground. On you know they're 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 once a year for two or three days at a time. There's specific things that we have to meet and uphold. Where a lot of these other certifications, uh, they're valid, but they're they're more you know like I believe in this. It's like you know I'm you know I I believe in in Judaism or Christianity, but I never actually practice. But as long as you actually say you believe in it, you can call yourself one of these people and. So so same thing like some of these certifications. It's, you know, I believe in the principles, but nobody's actually checking if you actually do anything. And so for us, that was a big part of why we went through Fair Trade USA. And it, I, can't, I don't remember the exact number, but I think there's about 270 things that we have to meet um, in terms of everything from worker safety to workers' pay to letting them set up a fair trade union, um, you know, things about how many stalls uh, as a percentage for women to men, uh, all, all these things that were kind of required. And in terms of your question of was that something that our factory was into, we own the factory, so we kind of made it a mandate, but then the question was, did the workers really understood what was going, understand what was going on? And and for a lot of them, they found, you know, they, they thought it was great. Sure, they're going to make more money through the fair trade premium because that's a, a, a part of fair trade certification is that you, even though we were paying relatively well, there's this premium where six percent in our case of the cost of all the shoes once they ship goes into a, a separate bank account, which is controlled by the workers, and that goes, you know, in addition to their pay. So sure, they want more money, but the question was. Do they really, under, you know, care about fair trade or this or that? And 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 the honest truth is, like a lot of these things, is you know they they laugh at us, right? A lot of not just in Ethiopia, but in, in developing countries, you know, when the West puts on these these requirements or these these names, you know, they 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 they, they mock it in the sense of these are, you know, these are Western mentalities telling us, hey, this is what we need to be doing, but we think we're doing just fine. But with us being in a, you know in a Canadian company, and uh, at first, you know, there was some mockery more than uh, angst. I guess if that makes sense. But listen, we've been doing it now for three years. The workers have seen firsthand that it's improved, you know, their working conditions, um, you know, compared to when they look at other factories or other in Ethiopia or anywhere, if you will. Um, but in addition, you know, the pay has been, you know, hugely beneficial. The fact that there's this kind of forced premium that our, our consumers, but also our workers know that every shoe is made in addition to their pay, they have this extra premium, you know, goes a real long way to, to improving the, the living standards, not just of our workers, but of their families and, and their kids one day. So a little long-winded, but in short, yeah, you know, it's, it's definitely come a long way. It hasn't been easy. The annual audits are still a pain in our ass, but, but we're glad they're there because they keep us in check. That's so amazing. Okay, we're going to need to take a short, brief break, um, and we'll be right back. Sure. <laughs> Thank you. 
New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do. But the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. Well, that was pretty quick. We're back. This is Kate Black, and you're listening to Magnifico Radio, and I'm talking today to Tal Debedier, no, Dedier, um from O Liberté. So, Tal, I wanted to, it's so funny to listen to those promos, because it, it seems, for some people, it seems at odds that there's a fashion show on a farm food network. Um, but I think it's just because a lot of people don't make that connection that a lot of the things that we wear originate from farms, particularly for you, animals. So I wanted to ask you about the infrastructure over in Ethiopia. How, how is the, what's the tannery situation and, and what are the kind of environmental safeguards that, that you see being put in place or that you've seen change um, since you've been there? Yeah, no, great question. So you know, with us, obviously, our sh- we make leather shoes. So for us, you know, animal and husbandry and the tanning process and, and you know, the slaughter process is, is an important part of our of, of how we, uh, you know, ensure our workers are continuing to, to have jobs and, and how we sell our shoes. And so for us, when we were coming in at the very beginning, 2009, when we were auditing both the shoe factories and the tanneries, you know, I really knew nothing. Uh, not I really, I did know nothing about leather and shoes. And so we were coming in kind of with a, as a blank slate and, and trying to understand and how this all worked. And, um, you know, the tannery system is, is, you know, it's not as modern as, you know, some places in the world, whether it's Asia or the U.S. or, or Europe, um, but it's not as archaic as a lot of people would think. And, and over time, we started to really, I can't remember, I think there was maybe about two dozen tanneries in Ethiopia, but we started narrowing our, our work really into kind of three or four. And for a long time, you know, our main tannery is Hafte, was Hafte Tannery. And for us, the real reason is he wasn't the biggest, he wasn't the, the cheapest, but he had, you know, chrome recycling plants, he had a water treatment affluent plant, and he really kind of set the standard in terms of specifically within Ethiopia of where and how he wanted everything to be in terms of chemicals because that, that really is one of the, mo- the, the most dangerous part of the, the, the tanning process is the chemicals, not that are used on the leather, but it's where that chemical and that water goes after it's being used and how it impacts the workers. And so those are things we really kind of reviewed and said as we get bigger, you know, while we can't financially say, hey, you need to do this or you need to, to do that, we said we will support you by either paying a premium or making sure to continue buy from you as long as you keep these standards in place and have, you know, proper management and delivery times. Um, and then from there, we'll continue to, to see how we can improve your systems and maybe one day, you know, build our own. Um, and so the tanning process has always been something that we've been, you know, let's say had our hands on from day one. On the other side, you know, the, the leather starts from, from the beginning. And so what's kind of unique in Ethiopia is by its nature, the husbandry or the, the farming is, is what we call natural farming. And so these animals are, you know, because the farmers just don't have the, the finances for you know antibiotics and maybe don't see the need at least at this point um, or hormones you know all, all these animals are hormone free range free you know they're 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 kind of grazing the land 
uh, antibiotic-free, just in their natural state. And unlike Western animals that are kind of born, raised, fed, you know, force-fed, and then slaughtered uh, within a year, you know, these, these animals, maybe a year and a half, these animals typically live, you know, six to seven or eight, our cows, six to seven to eight years, uh, kind of their, their relatively natural life. And at the, at the end of their natural, you know, yeah, useful life, if you will, you know, when they pass, that's when the skins are used. And so, you know, we're quite fortunate, you know, from that perspective that we continue to find ways uh, to, to both educate and be part of that, that economy in ways that, that make sense. You know, it's not obviously for a vegan or a vegetarian who's, who's out on, moral, on, on their moral grounds, but for us, you know, there's a lot of impact, positive impact that we have by specifically working in the leather industry um, and supporting kind of the initiatives, you know, from, from that sake. And then when you take it one step further in terms of climate change, you know, because Ethiopian cows um, aren't hormone and, 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 and injected with antibiotics, they're actually a lot smaller. The average Ethiopian cow, you know, I don't remember these. It's about it's more than half half the size of, of a traditional Western cow, and so by that means, you know, there's less methane which is going up into the into the, the ozone. There's a lot of other kind of beneficial, uh, environmentally beneficial aspects of how how our animals are raised that, that we that we're quite fortunate. Now we don't do any of that or. or or mandate any of that just because of our size. We're still relatively small, but it's things that we monitor on a constant basis for sure. It's so funny. I can't believe actually that you're in Toronto. I'm in Brooklyn. We're both Canadians. We're having this conversation. And it, it's, did you, like, I often ask people, like, did you have hippie parents or what was it in, in your childhood that kind of led you down this path? Is there something, yeah. is there something yeah, that no. you can kind of point to that, that no, really kind of leads to definitely not hippie, hippie parents. I mean, my parents, uh, I love them to death and they love me to death, but they, <laughs> they would definitely, you know, they, they definitely find it quite, quite amusing what, what I'm involved in. Um, but no, I mean, no, for me, it's look. I, I when I was seventeen, you mentioned the beginning of the show. I went to Belize when I was seven. You know, pretty young. I studied in Singapore as part of an exchange. You know, when other people were traveling around the world, going to Europe, or if they were traveling, um, you know, for me, I, any little dollar I had, I'd try to go somewhere to a developing country. So, you know, when I was in Singapore, I would go to you know my weekends to, to Thailand or Malaysia, cause, you know, or somewhere nearby. Um, or and then after school, after undergrad, I, I took a year off and I went around Latin America for a year. And we ran out of money. You know, we we. we figure things out. Um, so for me, I just, I've always loved the idea of developing countries, traveling, and then when I eventually went to go do my MBA, I was trying to think about how to combine them all. And for me, it's just it's just something I thought was was the right thing to do. It's not necessarily that Africa has to be the focus. It's just this idea of I, I'm tired of people giving out handouts, you know, whether it's here in, the, in Canada, the U.S., or uh, you know, it's Africa, or it's anywhere in the world. I just think that we can do so much better if you know if we work together. And and you know, look, our workers will tell you day one and every day saying I I don't want a handout. I just want to work hard to make my money so I can pay my taxes, pay my hydro bill, you know, put a roof over my head, and send my kids to school. They have you know, everyone has the exact same concerns for the most part. And so why why just keep giving all these handouts when if we think about things and I don't even say we're creative, we're just making shoes. It's not like we're making anything really unique. I mean, the shoes have been around for thousands of years. And so that's 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 the brilliance of our model is we're making something super basic in a very difficult place and saying if we could do it here, do it anywhere. You know, you know, our thing is not about made in Ethiopia and that's where everything should be. It's it's encourage people to say you can make things anywhere. You you don't want leather shoes, fine, make cotton you know, choose out of cotton or plot. There's a lot of amazing, you know, kind of materials that are being made today as well. But it's the idea that just, 
you know, where it's done for me was just how could I be different? How could I create jobs knowing that jobs impact the middle class and the middle class, you know, impacts an economy and saying for others, saying we will never be the biggest shoe factory or brand, um, but we want to be, have one of the biggest impacts in terms of saying to others, saying take a chance, you know, be the chance and, and, and in our case, step into a right, you know, the right quote unquote pair of shoes. And that's, that's so well said. I was reading um, an interview where you kind of bristled when somebody suggested that you were a social entrepreneur and, you were, and you, your response was more, no, this is, this is about sustainable good. Um, do you still believe that that, that is the, the force of change? Yeah, I, I really, I don't want to say despise, it's a little strong, but I think that the word social entrepreneur is a little, you know, kind of silly. I mean, you know, my parents had a, had a furniture company uh, for, you know, 30 years, and they employed dozens and dozens of people, and those people had families, and they put food on those people's tables. So, you know, why are they not social entrepreneurs? Because furniture is not sexy, because it wasn't done organically or sustainable. So for me, that's just being an entrepreneur. You know, being a good entrepreneur is not is, is really creating a company that creates jobs, not one job in one machine, but, you know, creates jobs that allow you to stimulate an economy. And so, you know, for me, that that's really what gets me excited with Get It's Going. And it's not easy. Like, everyone says, hey, I could have done the exact same thing. Why not create jobs in China or Canada? Because you're still creating jobs. And, um, and that's, that's those are very valid points. But for, for me and where I thought there was some opportunity, both from a business uh, and a marketing and a social perspective, if you will, um, you know, it was there in Ethiopia. But the social aspect is not because I wanted to be socially a social entrepreneur. It's just for me, there's there's a marketing aspect to that social, and in by definition, I get to do some good. That's great, um, but it's just the kind of the way that I think you need to be doing business is taking care of, of you know the people that work for you, the people that you sell to, and, and then obviously the people around us in, in the world that we live in. That's so amazing. And so tell me about the growth, because I, you definitely have um, increased the aesthetic. I, I read that you hired a designer um, not too long ago, so the aesthetic is you're getting more, um, what sort? Commercial, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so the, and you've also increased the, the line offerings, because now you've added bags and handbags. Yeah, yeah, no. So I mean, everything comes with time. What's what's really nice for us is because we own the factory and the way we make our shoes, everything is a, is a handmade process. So we still use machines, um, but it's sorry, it's handcrafted. That's a, kind of a better way to say it. But yeah, no. And because of that, we have a men's line, we have a women's line, we have a small baby line, we have a bag line. Uh, we're looking to expand into a new category of sandals in a couple months. And so for us. No, there's, there's lots that we're working on, but sometimes you have to be careful to do too much, right? I mean, some, if you look at the best shoe or fashion brands, they don't have a million products. They actually have two really good products for the most part. You know, you think Uggs, it's one shoe. You think, you know, you think, you know, Jimmy Choo, it's another, it's one shoe. It's usually kind of one shoe that stands out for everybody. And so with us, we have a lot of shoes, which, you know, gives us a really nice offering. But um, for us, you know, now as, as we get bigger, our growth is really now coming into precision, getting better with our quality and our efficiency and making sure our workers, you know, understand, you know, the best way to kind of utilize their skills but also their fair trade premiums. So there's a lot of now, you know, now our growth is in that Maslow hierarchy. Our need is now is kind of a self-awareness, right? It's we've we've covered our safety. We've covered our shelter. You know, we've covered some basic things, but now we got to self-improve, and, and now we're really on the self-improve aspect that's amazing and where can people find them because like, you have you yeah. have some fantastic retail partners across the, yeah, we the do. continent we do but we actually are focusing much more lately on a direct perspective so okay. uh, the best place to get your broadest selection is olibrite.com but yeah over the past we've sold to everybody from 
from from Nordstrom to Zappos to to REI. Uh, we had about 100. Re- we have or had at one point 100 retailers, but we're we're definitely focusing more on the direct to consumer aspect, just because we can provide a better a better customer experience, if you will. But there's still some great partners of ours, um, you know, that we're always maintaining and we'll main- maintain those relationships with for sure. That's amazing. And it used to be a hiking boot, like a, a hiking boot hybrid for kind of the trail yeah. in the city. Is that going to be the focus going forward? It still is, just because we could always have that more rugged look, but you'll start to see a lot more different aesthetics. So, like, we have the Yabella Women's Riding Boot, which has been our, it's not really a riding boot, but it's, it's our number one skew, uh, number one shoe for the last couple of months. Uh, we just we just can't stock enough of it, and we keep kind of building more. We'll start going into more of, like, a, a sandal, um, like a flip-flop thong-type sandal soon. We, we may start looking at, like, work boots. But, yeah, you're not going to see us doing, like, formal, formal wear or stilettos, uh, at least anytime soon. Um, you know, we're definitely trying to stay, like I said, earlier, more focused, more regimented, and really knowing where, what our, our core customers want and, and not, you know, div, I guess, dividing or trailing too far off from that, at least for the time being. Okay. And one last question. As a serial sure. entrepreneur, because this is now your second business, what kind of advice do you have for, for people who are really trying to, um, to build something with meaning, build something with longevity, but hit those crossroads or hit those kind of dark moments, like when, you're, when your partner passed away? Like, is there some sort of mantra or some sort of you know, one of those feel-good yeah. posters you have on your wall that just kind of gets no, you through the dark days? No, I don't really have, like, a feel-good poster, if you will. Uh, I mean, there's one kind of thing I always believe is, you know, people say, oh, that guy was lucky. You know, he, he his business went from nothing to, you know, you know, $600 million right away or, you know, that this or she was lucky. Everyone's like, it's, it's always about looking at the other side. And I, and I kind of have the belief that, you know, the longer you stick around, the luckier you get. So, you know, if you can figure out how to claw and scratch your way to that next day, to that next sale, to that next, you know, bank account, um, you know, eventually, you know, your your break will happen. You know, whether it'll be in a week or a month or ten years or twenty years, you know, I, that that's hard to say. And so for us, you know, that'd be number one. Number two, you know, it's it's you got to make it work. You know, I, I the only reason this works is because I have investors that believed in me. You uh, know, an idea that that I couldn't personally fund myself, but when I needed to fund it, I mean, I leveraged everything. I leveraged my house, my line of credits, my credit cards, and and at times we paid. Dearly, we paid you know a 1.42% interest on some stuff and 24% interest, and so if you believe in it enough, you know at the end of the day, you know you're going to be just as rich and just as poor when you're dead. So you might as well give it a real shot while you're here. Now that's definitely great advice. I want to thank my guests, um, Tal Dediar. I'm terrible with names. Um, for joining me from Oliberté, so it's O L I B E R T E dot com. Thank you to everyone here at Roberta's Home of Heritage Radio Network. Please visit Magnifico.com and sign up for our newsletter. And if you have any feedback, questions, want to be a sponsor, or recommend a guest, please email me at radio at Magnifico.com. Until next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. 
And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.